Welcome to the GeoMob podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the GeoMob podcast. This episode is going to be an absolute delight because at long last, after much begging and pleading, we have with us the most frequent GeoMob speaker of all time. He has spoken six times at GeoMobs over the years. It is none other, and at one of those times he won the Splash Maps Best Speaker, Speaker Prize. So it is none other than Gary Gale. Gary has a very lengthy history in Geo, so let me uh, look at my notes, make sure I get this right. Um, first up, he led the UK's Yahoo UK's Geotechnology Group, and we're going to be talking about some of the projects that he worked on there. After that, he was director at Nokia Maps. Uh, he was head of APIs at Ordnance Survey. He was CTO of What Three Words, and now he has returned to the startup scene where he is CTO of a company called Kama, which is a prop tech startup that came out of Geovation's Accelerator. And before all of that, before he got into Geo, or perhaps it was related, related to Geo, I don't think it was, he actually worked at the European Space Agency, so a literal rocket scientist. A very, very impressive, Gary. And finally, of course, you and I had the chance to work together at my company, Loku, where you helped us with the launch of the OpenCage Geocoder. So, a lengthy and impressive geo background. Gary, very nice. Great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Ed. Um, it's lovely, if slightly nerve-wracking, after listening to all of the other GMOB podcasts to, to be here. I, I hope we can do something which is at the level, at least, of all of our predecessors. <laughs> well, I left off, of course, your most impressive achievement, Gary, which was the subject of one of your talks at GMOB, is that you are the creator of the Vaguely Rude Places map, which I encourage every listener to go check out if they would like a chuckle. A very cool project. But that's not what we're going to talk about today. Today, we wanted to delve into some of to a bit of digital archaeology, I guess, a bit. And we're going to talk about the uh, Where on Earth data set, which was, of course, one of the, the foundational elements of the Web 2.0 Neo Geo scene. And we're going to talk about what happened to it, what it's evolved into, which is a different data set called Who's On First, and you know what the status is and how these projects are going. So let's dive in. Where should we begin? What Maybe you tell us what Where on Earth was? Sure. Well, I th I, actually, I think we should begin with Stephen Feldman, because to a certain degree, this, this is all his fault. So I met Steve just after I'd joined Yahoo, which was in 2006. And the reason I joined Yahoo was because they had acquired a British company called whereonearth.com. Now, let's just roll that back for um, a few years. So in 1995, so last century, can't believe I'm saying that, this company called Where on Earth was, was founded. And they sort of did early geocoding, early geolocation, what would kind of become what you called the um, sort of the, the Neo Geo side of things. So it was not from a GIS background, and it was focused on this, this fledgling thing called the internet. In 1998, whereonearth.com bought a company called GDC, and along with that acquisition came Stephen Feldman. And then in 2002, um, Where on Earth spun out GDC, but they kept one key aspect of their portfolio, which was um, a set of libraries and accompanying data. Now, the libraries were called Internet Locality, and the underlying data was called GeoPlanet. And basically what this did was it enabled you to analyze 
text, be that search queries, free text for geographic references, and to work out with a high degree of accuracy what those geographic references were. So sort of free text geocoding, if you will. And this, and this was and just for the UK guy or for the whole world? No, this was, this was for the whole world. So very difficult, technically. Very difficult, technically. And it, and it did all of the, the clever stuff that, that we now expect. Yeah, being able to disambiguate, being able to, to work out more clever stuff. So, you know, for example, if, you're to, if you see a reference to Panama, people tend to think, oh, yeah, the canal, they think the, uh, the country. But then if that context of that is Panama hat, then it's far more likely you're, you're talking to a slight, about a slightly outdated piece of headwear rather than something geographical. And the way in which it was able to work out all of these things was this underlying data set called Geoplanet, which was basically a gazetteer, but not a gazetteer as most people think of it, which is quite often just a big CSV of, of names together with coordinates. This was all linked together. You could you could almost argue this was sort of the semantic web and linked data before they were they were things. How, how do you, so once you how do you mean linked? Like a hierarchy? So we know that London is in England, or or, or what, what do you mean by a vertical hierarchy and a horizontal hierarchy, as well as a few others? So yeah, you're you're absolutely right. You know, London part of England, part of the United Kingdom, part of Europe, part of the world, parent-child relationships, but then also adjacent relationships. So, um, you know, the London Borough of Richmond-upon-Thames is next to the London Borough of Hounslow. Gotcha. But, not, but also respecting geography. So, for example, you wouldn't have the in the UK the county of Devon, being adjacent to the county of Gwent in Wales, because there's this whopping great big thing called um, the Severn Estuary in between, and they don't actually touch. So it, it was very cleverly editorialized. But then there was also um, this notion of belongs to, the, this sort of umbrella term, so that you would have a place in, in London belongs to the home counties, for example, in the UK colloquial place references which even if they weren't really formally defined uh, you know in london soho chinatown theaterland the west end gotcha. in 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 the states you know the bay area the pacific northwest the eastern seaboard all of that was included and was linked with relationships geographic coordinates boundaries and lots of other geo goodness how had this been created manually or by by human editors of some sort or or you know sounds very painstaking it, it was a very painstaking process and um, there was about 15 people who worked solely on the data hmm. and there was a lot of automated stuff but there was also stuff which needed humans to catch the um, the subtleties and the howlers that machine learned algorithms in its very, very early stage just couldn't cope with. And this sort of thing was was enough for where on earth to want to keep this as a prime asset. And they they managed to actually sell it to, to Hutchinson, the 3G mobile network, to do very, very early mobile geolocation. Hmm. And that thing all came together sort of um, in, in the early 2000s. 
So in the early 2000s, Yahoo um, were engaged in a bit of an arms race with, with Microsoft in the form of Bing, the search engine, and Google with their search engine to do geotargeted advertising, basically. And they wanted a way of working out what people were talking about geographically in order to be able to serve them targeted ads and targeted not just by keywords, but targeted by, by location. And so um, in 2005, Yahoo acquired whereonearth.com and went into this top secret program, which was codenamed, ironically, Panama internally, which was to slot the Where on Earth technology into Yahoo's application stack to be able to get to across the finishing line in, in offering a geotargeted ad system. And dependent upon whose version of history you read, I think Yahoo got there first. I think we got there about a month before before Google did and around about a month more before Bing did. And all of the, the stuff that if you've, if you've worked in the advertising industry in the online space that you take for granted, this, this, was, this was groundbreaking and new. And then in 2006, I joined Yahoo. And then things kind of really took off because at the same point in time as um, me joining Yahoo in 2006, Nokia released the N95 smartphone-ish, which had a GPS receiver inside it. And then a year later, Steve Jobs released the first generation of the iPhone, again, which had a GPS inside it. And so all of a sudden, this the, the whole sort of geo-local mobile thing just absolutely went completely berserk. And it was a really, really good time to be in in that sector of the tech industry because all of a sudden you could you could get a really accurate location fix on a mobile device which people were carrying around in your pocket. At the same point in time, the cost of storage was was coming down per gigabyte. So all of the all of this data you could you could collect it and store it and process it. The the cost of bandwidth, both broadband and mobile, started to come down and you really were at an absolute explosion of technology um and it was it was one hell of a ride well i, I think you're perfectly honest you've overlooked of course the seminal event gary which was the very first geomob which was in 2008 for exactly the reasons you cite indeed and, and i was fortunate enough to be rung up by this guy called chris osborne who was sort of the genesis behind the the earliest geomob and I'd met Chris at Where 2.0, which was O'Reilly's big Geo 2.0 conference over in, in the Bay Area. And it was it was a brilliant conference, but it was also eye-wateringly expensive. So there was this sort of unconference, foo camp, bar camp style called Where, Where camp, camp which, went on, which went on after Where 2.0. 2.0 for those people who basically couldn't afford the three-figure dollar sums to to get a pass to where 2.0 and that's where Chris and I first met over um over a beer um in somewhere in the Bay Area and he, he rang me up and said look I'm trying to do something kind of community based I'm thinking of calling it the GeoMo mobile location meetup which then morphed into GeoMob. And so we had the very first GMOB in London in Google's offices just near Victoria Station. So, you know, I've, I've been very lucky and very fortunate to be there for, 
for the first one of those as well. Um, and strangely enough, I was talking about something which Yahoo had just spun out of their brick house accelerator project in San Francisco called Fire Eagle, which was this notion of location sharing to using your data for your benefit and choosing how granular the location that you wanted to share would be with partners. So, uh, you know, the, the idea was if it's your friends and family, you're kind of okay sharing your location to street level. If it's to the to the outside world, you might want to constrain that to block level or to city level or to state level. And the thing which drove all of this was that where on earth data and the, and the, the where on earth identifiers that each place in that hierarchical model had. And rather than calling them where on earth identifiers, identifiers they were called well IDs. And so this this data set then, what was the the licensing around it? It was it was freely available because I remember at, at the company I was running at the time, Nestoria, we started building on top of where on earth as well and, and using WO IDs internally. And and so we were using it, but but what was the decision process in Yahoo, inside Yahoo of should this be made publicly available and how should people be able to use it and take us through that. Yeah, there were two things behind that. One of which was people quite rightly were saying, well, look, you, you've released this API, you, there's all of this data behind it, you're releasing these stable identifiers, which you want us to put into our backend systems into our data sets. But where's the safety and security in that you, you could choose to shut this off, and we're left with this number, and it means diddly to us. You know, give us some sense of confidence. And so within Yahoo Geo, we, we went to the lawyers and said, hey, we'd like to make this all of this data available. And the lawyers went, nah, no, 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 no. You're not doing that. That's far too valuable. And we then sort of struck an uneasy compromise, which was we would release the data at the time in CCBY license because things like the ODBL and open data licenses was didn't really exist at that precise moment in time and creative commons was the best that there was but in doing so we had to remove anything which came which was coordinate or boundary or polygon related because that was actually data which came from initially from teleatlas and then later from navtech and Kind of understandably, I think Navtech's legal people would have got a little bit jumpy if we'd released all of their, their data for free, because that was their monetization stream. Um, and we also had to remove quite a lot of the, the relationships in there. But let's just say what got released wasn't exactly what the lawyers wanted. And they're like, no, you can't do that. Oh, too late. We've done it. Mm. So there, there, was, there was a little bit of cheekiness, I think, going on when, when that was released. But it... It worked, and the the APIs that we were producing got taken up. I mean, you said you you used them at Nestoria, and there were there were a lot of companies which then used that confidence that you know if, if Yahoo turns the tap off, they can still work out what these identifiers mean through this GeoPlanet data set, which was released. So you got so Foursquare started um, using WoW IDs, Twitter started using WoW IDs, startups started basing their product on top of it. So there was, oh, what was the, what was the startup? It was based in, in London by Matt Bidolf, Doppler. Oh, right. Yeah, this, Doppler. The, of course. Um, Doppler built on top of the Yahoo 
data set. And we really saw this whole ecosystem springing up around it. And it, it was it was brilliant. It, it really was. We, we kept on updating the data because, of course, geography changes and releasing it. And but at the same time, Yahoo was going through all of the, the internal turmoil that it went through, where it's like, this week, we're a technology company. Great. No, uh, no, no, no. Next week, we're a product company. And then we're an advertising company. And then we're a marketing company. And we didn't know what we didn't know who we were working for. Basically. I believe the technical term, Gary, are the death throes of, of a digital company there. Speaking as a, a, Yahoo, well, a Yahoo alumni indeed. myself. Well, no, your, your point was very prescient about having the confidence, giving the users of the data the confidence that it would still be there if the company turned the tap off, because that is, in fact, what eventually happened, of course. Well, it, it is. And one of the other users of the data was a photo sharing company, which Yahoo had acquired called Flickr. And one of their chief engineers um, was a guy called Aaron Cope who um, went on to work for Mapson. And that's, and that's kind of in a few moments, that's where Who's On First comes in. But I remember going up to the Flickr offices in San Francisco and they had a bar chart on the wall made out of post-it notes, which was the number of days since we've had a new VP. <laughs> and that, that bar chart never got into triple figures. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and so I I parted ways with um, with Yahoo. I went to join Nokia, and so that was in two thousand and ten. Two thousand and twelve, the last, at the, as as we now know, the last GeoPlanet data release was made available, and then sort of two thousand and fourteen, Yahoo put this bizarre notice up on the download page saying. Uh, we're pausing downloads until we work out a better way of surfacing the data. And everyone was going, no, downloads is pretty good. Downloads work for us. <laughs> um, but it was fairly obvious that the writing was on the wall by that point in time. And then in 2005, they announced the that all of the Geo APIs were going to go away together with a whole load of other stuff under the Yahoo Developer Network badge. I think some of the GOI APIs lived on in BOSS, which was the build your own search service, but it was all behind a paywall. And then there was somebody who set up a website, which which every hour pinged the, the Yahoo API endpoints to see if they were still up. And August 2016, all of a sudden, um, you started getting 404s on the, the Geo APIs. And that was pretty much it for, for Yahoo Geo. Um, August 2016, it was it was gone. The end of an era. It was, but thankfully, the all you know, the good thing about releasing data into the open is it's it's a bit like the genie. Once it's out of the bottle, you can't put it back in. And the that data then made its way onto archive.org, so the Internet Archive's Wayback Machine, where it still lives as its original compressed format for posterity. But the aforementioned Aaron Cope from Flickr built a thing called the WoDB, which was basically a website which took all of the, the escrow data release that we had done and stitched it all back together and tried to rebuild all of the relationships and tried to find open data sources to put back in all of the geospatial components, the centroids, um, the polygons, the boundaries. And that succeeded. And that's, that was sort of the genesis for Mapson's Who's On First project. And there's 
there's a little bit of amusing history in this. I, I don't know if you're old enough to remember the Stanley Kubrick film, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yes. So the, the computer on 2001, which issued the immortal lines, I'm sorry, Dave, I can't do that, was called HAL, yeah. H-A-L. Yeah. And they, the, the standing, maybe apocryphal, maybe urban legend, is it was called H-A-L because that was one letter on, from for, IBM. on each count for, from IBM. Yeah. And whilst Who's On First was nominally named after the Abbott and Costello baseball skit where you're yeah they're trying to explain who is on the first base of this baseball game but the name of the person on first base is is actually called who Who. so yeah it's all about disambiguation of course w-o-e where where on earth if you increment one letter you get w-o-f who's on first yeah, I got it. I got it. I I, found, I always found the name a little confusing. The who's on first, you know, doesn't everyone in America knows this reference, but I'm not sure outside of America it's widely known. But I get it. I get it. So so the data set had been rescued and lives on as 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 who's on first and and what happened with who's on first? It, it certainly does. So so who's on first um, st- is still going strong and in so many ways like where on earth it's starting to engender other other projects um indeed people have are starting to build businesses on top of that so a good example of that is a geoco- an open source geocoding tool called Pelius, which is sort of not necessarily an open cage competitor but works in a slightly different space well Pel- Pelius is the technology right i mean there are companies that i guess uh, like Pelius is a technology that we could also use but there are companies that then provide hosted Pelius. Yes. Indeed, um, and Geocode.Earth exactly. is, is, is a good example of they, they they built their business around Pelius and are active contributors to both to Pelius, which itself was a Mapson project, as well as being contributors back to Who's On First. And if you look at the the way in which the the data is all structured in Who's On First, it's it's where on earth on steroids. I mean, significant steroids, the sort which will get you banned from sort of professional competitive <laughs> Olympic sports. And it, but it's really nice to see a data set which is valuable, which knows its history, which people are actively using and building and keeping maintained, and you're building an ecoset out of it. And sort of, I think the the, the final plus point for me, um, is that the license under which that data is released is one which doesn't preclude commercial endeavors to be built off of it, and uh, which maybe uh, you could argue that a certain other well-known community mapping project could suffer from that particular malaise. And you're, you're able to derive data sets as long as you keep the attribution as long as you give that hat tip to all of the hard work which has been done by other people. And so, you know, it's, I think it's this this really nice, almost full circle of digital archaeology, as you put it, that, you know, one data set begets another data set. And the, the whole process of, of ecosystem building and people actually using that in anger for real world starts all over again. And, and especially in today's somewhat uncertain and frankly, crazy times that we live in. There, there's a nice sense of sort of the the circular cadence of, of this repeating itself, which which I find quite 
vaguely reassuring. Well, I think it's also interesting as someone who who lived through this entire journey. I mean, I, I, I worked at Yahoo from 98 until 2003. You also see now looking back things which you thought were set in stone. I mean, I remember when Yahoo was the dominant internet company and now it's gone. I mean, young people don't even know what, what Yahoo is or was. And and it's kind of the same today when we look at the, we look at the companies that are dominant today. You know, who can say with any certainty will they still be around in twenty years or, or whatever? So it's important that these tools that we built that enable us to build the great things that they are able to live on. I think that's quite important through open source, through open data, and also I think it's very important that we we as a as a community look back on these stories and learn from them and and exactly you say you know have the history of where we came from and why did were things done the way they did and what were the mistakes that were made and and could be done better next time so yeah and learning from those mistakes as well but but also i think it's a, it's a nice um, illustration of the fact that you know open data does doesn't appear from magic pixie dust you know, you don't have the the open data elves at the bottom of your garden who um, issue forth fully fledged, well thought out open data formats with open data in, inside of it. Yeah, you know, it, it comes from people, either individual contributors in in their own spare time because they like doing that, or from companies who see the the benefits that they accrue from contributing back to open data and to open source and and in a way are actually bankrolling that through the the their staff's time which is being spent on doing that because then you know other people continue to do that so then you get updated data you get updated open source components and yeah it's it's a nice cyclic and never-ending virtuous circle, which is very beneficial, I think, to us within the the geo sector. But it's very beneficial to uh, you know the, the internet and online as a whole. Because if you if you know, if, if this guy called Linus Torvalds hadn't taken the decision to open source his fledgling Unix alike clone called Linux, an awfully large amount of the internet probably wouldn't be there or if it was it would look very very different from the way in which we experience it now i i think you're you're quite right you're preaching to the choir there guy i mean it's a lot of hard work to create open source or open data and and a lot of the work is you know the fun and the glamour is in the creation but the real work is in the maintenance and keeping it keeping it current and keeping keeping the tools working even as the technology evolves and as the the way of using the data differs and you know the same way in the beginning in 95 when where on earth was created who could have imagined that everyone would have you know the smartphone using the data in a thousand different ways all the time who knows where we'll be in 20 years so oh i mean you absolutely can't i mean i i, I remember there was a talk i gave it it might even be a, a gmob saying how hard it is to do tech predictions and there was a guy what was his name jack tramiel who was at the time i think the president of this company called digital equipment corporation which produced early what were called mini computers mini in as much as you know they still needed a big a big air-conditioned computer room and their dedicated power supply but they weren't these monsters that were the old ibm mainframes and he went went on record saying that he thinks there may be a market for I think as many as a hundred computers in the world someday, Gary. Someday, <laughs> someday, absolutely. And um, you know, the 
because I'm sort of middle-aged and, and grumpy and I've been through an awfully large amount of this, I still find it gobsmacking that I'm out and about on the street and I take my phone out of my pocket and the, the computing power that I have in my phone is thousands times more than the compute resource and storage resource that was available to me on the first systems that I worked on. All right. worked I on. Mean, Plus, it's connected to this global network. Sure. I mean, it's, it's complete magic, of course. It absolutely is. So, so that, you know, that, that's, that's the where on earth story. That's the who's on first story. And, and I think there's, there's a nice underpinning to all of that with of why digital archaeology is is good it, it may not have the the immediate visual appeal that you, you have when you see old-fashioned maps um stuck up on on the wall with with here be dragons written on it and all of that wonderful artwork but in it, it's it's important i think where on a scale of one to ten of importance it is i i'm not quite sure somewhere in the middle maybe but to see things repeat themselves to see history repeat itself and and to see stuff take off and basically foster innovation and ecosystems there's some there's something really really nice about that and i think there's also some lessons in that for people who put open data out and they do it as a sort of a fire and forget it's like yes we've got to release some open data okay there there you go we did it that was in 2015 what do you mean it's out of date you want us to keep this updated are you crazy? Yeah, that's the hard work. Anyway, Gary, thank you very much for the for the walk down memory lane and the, the excellent summary there. I, I agree with your viewpoint. So as a longtime Geomob attendee, let's close perhaps by maybe you can share a favorite Geomob memory. Any talks that stood out for you or events that you look back fondly on? Very much so. And actually, it was the, I think it was the last, one of the last in-person GMOBs that I was able to attend. And it, and it was, it was a winner on three counts for me. So this was one of the ones which was done at the uh, the new Geovation Hub. In Clerkenwell. In Clerkenwell, just up the road from where um, Cameron's office is, used to be. Well, actually, they still are, but we're, we're not there at the moment for obvious reasons. So hit number one for me was being presented with a signed copy of Ken Fields' cartography book, which included the uh, vaguely removed places map in as, as, as an example of how to do sort of community-based cartography, which was very, very pleasing. I did not know that. That's awesome. Congratulations. Uh, it, that's the reason why Ken's cartography book has got pride of place on, on my desk um, and what a monster of a beast it is. Very cool. So, so that sort of... Hit number one. Hit number two was actually talking about who's on first at GMOB and um, getting the coveted Splash Maps Best Talk prize. And then hit number three was watching the mayhem that ensued with Ken Field's cheese map of, of the United Kingdom, which I think really encapsulated GMOB in, in a nutshell, in as much as you go there, you're going to meet a lot of really interesting people. You're going to learn an awfully large amount. And there is going to be something which is going to happen, which is so left field crazy that there is no way that you would ever be able to predict that you'd be in that situation. <laughs> and that's just the that's just the joy of it. There's There's always something there that makes you smile and makes you go away thinking, I met up with a bunch of great people. I learned something. And what the hell just happened? 
Yeah, that was a weird and wonderful evening. That with the cheese map, you know, I, I was I was pleased, Gary, that your your many you know the 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 years of work you had put in speaking at GeoMob was rewarded with with you getting the best speaker prize that night. But I'm not ashamed to admit that my vote went to the cheese map because that was cool. I mean, that was really hell. My my vote went to the cheese map as well, and I, and I I enjoyed sampling quite a lot of dairy produce it felt like i'd eaten my own body weight in cheese by the time i staggered home to the home via the tube network yeah that was great all right on that cheery note gary let's let's wrap up uh one final thing how can listeners get in touch with you if you've triggered some questions or or they want to learn more on where on earth about where on earth or or they just want to you know get in touch sure so best way to get in touch with me is probably via twitter where i go by the the moniker of vici that's v-i-c-c-h-i it's a very long story and the subject for another podcast is how that name came about at the moment the data for where on earth um relives on in a github organization called woe planet w-o-e planet and um as soon as i find enough evening time to write it there will also be a website with all of that coming on but um i'm not quite to the stage where it stays up yet because it's it's a little bit clunky and as are so many of these evening labor of love pet projects the rest of of life has a habit of getting in the way um it'll get there eventually i've only been doing this for five years so the fact that we've got we've now got data published i think is a is a good first step we just need to be able to put a website on to allow people to poke in it and that will be coming hopefully before the end of this year. All right. Well, once it's ready, we'll get it linked up in the show notes. But uh, but until then, we'll we'll link to the uh, the GitHub repo. All right. Thank you very much, Gary, for taking the time to chat with us. And I hope to see you at a GeoMob event again soon. Me too, Ed. Thank you for the time. Um, thanks for being part of this. And while I'm not looking forward to listening to the next episode because it will have my voice on it, I'm definitely looking forward to the episode after. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today and listening to the GMOP podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics that we should cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is Geomob. You can follow Steven at Steven Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. You can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode, and of course, seeing you at a future Geomop event. Hope to see you there soon.